0: Alright, in this podcast we're going to talk about political participation in voting. It's a politi- politicast, if you will. We can think of political participation as falling into two major categories. Traditional participation in politics includes not only voting, but also attending campaign events, rallies, and fundraisers volunteering on behalf of candidates and political organizations, canvassing, displaying campaign signs, contacting elected officials, contributing money to candidates and parties, or even challenging a law in court. Protests, demonstrations, and strikes, too, are age-old forms of participatory politics. In addition to traditional participation, the growing world of digital politics includes not only the exchange of information, but also fundraising and voter mobilization. Though most experts now agree that digital politics is just a new way of engaging in traditional politics, as digital politics have become more common, it continues to change participation in important ways that may increase engagement in politics overall. Now, traditional political participation refers to a wide range of activities designed to influence government, politics, and policy. For most citizens today, voting in elections is the most common form of participation in politics. Yet ordinary people took part in politics long before the advent of the election or any other formal mechanism of popular involvement in political life. If there is any natural or spontaneous form of popular political participation, it is not the election, but the protest or riot. In fact, for much of American history, fewer Americans exercised their right to vote than participated in urban riots and rural uprisings, as voting for a long time was limited to white male landowning citizens. The vast majority of Americans reject rioting or violence for political ends, but peaceful protest is protected by the First Amendment and generally recognized as a legitimate and important form of political activity. During the height of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, hundreds of thousands of Americans took part in peaceful protests to demand social and political rights for African Americans. Peaceful marches and demonstrations have been employed by a host of groups across the ideological spectrum, such as the conservative Tea Party movement against big government and 2011 Occupy Wall Street protests against growing income inequality. To take a more recent example, in March 2018, thousands of people participated nationwide in March for Our Lives protests against gun violence and lack of gun regulations in the wake of a string of school shootings. Protests have erupted, particularly in response to the Trump presidency and some of his controversial measures. The nationwide Women's March the day after Trump's inauguration day was the largest single-day protest in U.S. history, with half a million protesters. The Women's March advocated policies to protect human rights or women's rights as well. LGBTQ rights, reproductive rights, racial equality, freedom of religion, workers' rights, immigration reform, universal health care, and protecting the environment. That same month, there were massive protests against Trump's controversial travel restrictions on immigrants from seven predominantly Muslim countries. In August 2017, violent clashes erupted in Charlottesville, Virginia, between white nationalists r- rallying against the city's decision to remove a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee and counter protesters. President Trump further inflamed emotions when he refused to denounce the white supremacists. The fallout from the controversial Charlottesville marches and Trump's comments led the CEOs of leading U.S. corporations to resign in protest from two White House advisory councils of American business leaders. Protests often lead to action and remain a common form of political participation across the ideological spectrum. Growing concern over police discrimination and excessive use of force against African Americans has led to hundreds of protesters across the nation in the past five years, including NFL players, coaches, and owners kneeling in locked arms during the playing of the national anthem in silent protest of racial inequality. Political People participate in public protests to attract media attention, raise public awareness, and send a message to politicians about the policies they enact. The Black Lives Matter movement and protests by NFL players, for example, have prompted a national discussion and political action around police violence and reform, including revamped training programs and calls to equip police officers with body cameras. Opinion polls suggest that both white and black Americans increasingly feel that racism is a problem in American society. Elections, of course, are the hallmark of political participation in democracy. In addition to voting, citizens can give money to candidates or political organizations, volunteer to work on campaigns, contact political officials, sign petitions, attend public meetings, join organizations, display campaign signs and pens, write letters to the editor, and attend rallies. They can also lobby their respective representatives in Congress and they can even sue the government or run for elective office. Such activities can communicate much more detailed information to public officials than voting can. By volunteering for a political campaign, writing or emailing their member of Congress or contributing money to a political organization, people can convey their specific opinions, making these other political activities often more satisfying than voting. However, these other forms of political action generally require more time, effort, and or money than voting. As a result, the percentage of the population that participates in ways other than voting is relatively low. For most Americans, voting is the single most important political act. Voting is the most common way that individuals interact with politics. The right to vote gives ordinary Americans an equal voice in politics as each vote has the same value. Voting is especially important because it selects the officials who make the laws that the American people must follow. The right to vote, or suffrage, is a legal right. During early periods of American history, suffrage was restricted to white males over the age of 21. Many states further limited voting to those who owned property or paid more than the specified amount of annual tax. Until the early 1900s, state legislatures elected U.S. Senators and there were no direct elections for members of the Electoral College, who in turn elect the President. As a result, elections for the U.S. House, as well as state and local offices, were the primary venue for citizen participation in government. During the 19th and early 20th centuries, states often acted to restrict suffrage, initially through poll taxes or fees to vote and literacy tests or reading tests designed to curtail immigrant voting in northern cities. These laws were later imported to the southern states to prevent African Americans and poor whites from voting during the Jim Crow era, the period between the Civil War and the 1960s. Voter eligibility requirements often varied from state to state some states openly prevented the right to vote on the basis of race others did not some states require property ownership for voting others had no such restrictions over the past two centuries of american history a dominant trend has been federal statutes court decisions and constitutional amendments designed to override state voting laws and expand suffrage in the south voting rights for african-american men were established by the 15th amendment in 1870 which prohibited denying the right to vote on the basis of race. Despite the 15th Amendment, the voting rights of African-American men were effectively rescinded during the 1880s by the states of the former Confederacy with voting laws such as poll taxes and literacy tests. A goal of the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s was voting rights for African-Americans. This goal was partially achieved with the enactment of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which authorized the federal government to register voters in states that discriminated against minority citizens and allowed the government to challenge voting rules and practices that systematically disenfranchised minority voters. The result was the re-enfranchisement of Southern blacks for the first time since the 1860s. Women won the right to vote in 1920 through the adoption of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution. This amendment resulted primarily from the activism of women's suffrage movement, led by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Carrie Chapman Catt, among others during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The suffragists held rallies, demonstrations, and protest marches for more than half a century before achieving their goal. Before the federal government granted women the right to vote, numerous states and territories adopted women's suffrage, paving the way for women to earn the right to vote nationally. The most recent expansion of the right to vote in the United States, the 26th Amendment lowered the voting age from 21 to 18. Ratified during the Vietnam War, in 1971, it was intended to channel the disruptive protest activities of students involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement and to peaceful participation at the ballot box. Today, voting rights are granted to all American citizens aged 18 and up, although some states revoke this right from who, those who have committed a felony or are mentally impaired. Although eligibility to vote is now almost universal, America's overall rate of voting participation or turnout remains relatively low. The United States ranked 32nd in terms of voter turnout compared to other developed countries in 2016. Just over 58% voted in the 2012 and 2016 presidential elections. This pales in comparison to voting rates in the most recent national elections in other democracies, 87% in Belgium. 86% in Sweden, 71% in France, and 61% in the UK. Turnout in state and local elections, especially those that do not coincide with national contests or primaries, is typically much lower. Not only does the United States have relatively low rates of participation in elections, but those who do not vote are more likely to lack a college education and have lower incomes. That education and income track so closely with voter turnout is unique to the United States among Western democracies. Low voter turnout coupled with unequal participation rates can have negative outcomes, including the election of candidates who do not reflect the interests of most voters, government policies that benefit wealthy voters over the middle and lower classes, and lower trust in government and perceptions of government legitimacy. Participation in U.S. presidential elections has declined over the past four decades from a high of 64% in 1960. In 1996, participation reached a modern low when only 52% of eligible voters went to the polls. Since then, however, overall trends have improved in presidential elections due to highly contested elections and major efforts to get out the vote. Turnout reached a modern high of 62% in 2008 when Barack Obama's campaign mobilized many new voters. Turnout in 2016 was the third highest In the modern period and broke a record in terms of votes cast at 137.5 million ballots or 59% of eligible voters. In midterm elections with only congressional elections at the national level tend to have much lower voter turnout. In 2014, 36% voted though in 2018 turnout rose to 49%, a record high seen in non-presidential elections since 1966. Despite these overall trends, there are significant differences in voter turnout rates across the state. And we're going to talk about all these. So digital political participation is rapidly changing the way Americans experience politics. The Internet and social media have given citizens greater access to information about candidates and campaigns and a greater role in politics than ever before. Digital politics is the new pulse of American democracy where political news frequently goes viral. Digital politics built on traditional forms of participation, but makes many of those activities easier and more immediate, giving citizens greater potential for community building and networked participation. The Internet, and social media in particular, offers an active two-way form of communications with feedback, rather than the more passive one-way communication involved in reading printed newspapers, watching television, or listening to the radio. It allows for person-to-person communication as well as broadcast capability, especially through social media where information can be widely shared. Digital participation includes discussing issues or mobilizing supporters through social media, emailing and text messaging, reading blogs and online news stories, viewing YouTube videos and campaign ads, and sharing opinions on the Internet, contributing money to candidates and political organizations, contacting political leaders and following them on Twitter, campaigning on social network sites, working on behalf of candidates, and organizing face-to-face neighborhood meetings online. With 67% of Americans reading the news using social media, digital participation is the most common way average Americans participate in politics outside of voting. Why are digital media so effective for mobilization and political participation? Online mobilization works through emotional appeals, immediacy, personal networks, and social pressure. Political scientist Meredith Rolfe argues that social connections are an essential component of political participation. Her work reveals that individual factors such as income and education are imperfect predictors of turnout, but one's social network is strongly predictive of political participation. When members of a social network indicate they have voted in an election or contributed to a candidate, for example, that can motivate others to do the same. Peer social pressure allows members of a social network to model and mimic actions of other members of their group. Social media, in particular, can efficiently coordinate the actions of millions of people required for political campaigns and winning elections. One in three social media users have encouraged others to vote, and roughly the same percentage have shared their own thoughts or comments on politics or government online. Social media are characterized by tiny acts of political participation, sharing, following a candidate or organization, liking a post, commenting. That can scale up to dramatic changes leading to real-world political protests, voter mobilization drives, and the election of candidates and parties to government. Small acts of political participation made possible by social media may give those uninterested in politics or who are rarely engaged a way of getting involved easily, which can then encourage them to do more. Politicians, too, make much use of social media. In 2016, every serious presidential candidate had a Facebook page and Twitter account with thousands or, in some cases, millions of fans who received daily updates from the candidates, political parties, and campaigns. These fans, in turn, signaled to their friends which candidates they supported for elected office, making politics a seamless part of everyday discussion. Donald Trump supporters receive emails. From his organization, follow him on Twitter and Facebook, and turn out for rallies and events. Based on a survey analysis of 65,000 registered voters and holding all other demographic factors constant, frequent social media users were more likely to vote for Trump than any other candidate in 2016. Unlike traditional social movements that gain momentum slowly over time, digital politics and the use of social media especially can create punctuated, explosive bursts of collective action. For example, Bernie Sanders supporters relied heavily on Reddit to organize rallies and rock concerts during the 2016 presidential primaries on behalf of the Vermont senator. Protests erupted after Trump won the 2016 election despite losing the popular vote by nearly 3 million votes. For over 700,000 people signed an online petition in a matter of days to eliminate the electoral college and elect the president based on actual votes cast. Some have dismissed social media as clicktivism, forms of participation that require little effort and may or may not convert to offline acts of participation in politics. Others argue so-called clicktivism is the building block for sustained participation in politics. President Trump's existence Extensive use of Twitter is evidence that audience building on social media matters for political leadership and winning votes. The clicks of millions of Americans can and do add up. An important question is whether online engagement in politics influences offline participation, especially voting. The discussion from previous uh, suggests a number of mechanisms by which social networks and small acts political participation lead to voting and offline engagement in politics. Many people use social media to facilitate organizing face-to-face neighborhood meetings or to get information about a local campaign event or where to vote. Digital politics encourages information gathering and interaction among users and elected officials by combining the content of traditional media with interpersonal communication. The combination of information and interaction gives the internet the potential to promote interest in politics and increase participation. A growing body of research finds that online activities such as reading digital news, commenting on blogs, and using email or social media for politics increases the likelihood of voting and is associated with contributing to political campaigns, volunteering on behalf of candidates, and even contacting elected officials. Online participation is also linked with discussing politics with friends or family, developing an interest in politics in general, and being informed about politics. Additionally, the ease of making monetary contributions online has led to a dramatic increase in this form of political participation. The percentage of people who donated directly to candidates has doubled since 1992. Barack Obama was the first candidate to capitalize on online fundraising, raising much of the money needed to win the 2000 presidential election from small, less than $100 individual online donations. In fact, the 2008 presidential election and Obama's campaign ushered in the modern era of digital politics, building comprehensive online strategies to mobilize supporters and dozens made unprecedented use of digital media to learn about candidates and to participate in campaigns. In 2016, 12% of Americans said they contributed money to a candidate running for public office up from 6% four years previously, in large part because of online donations, 71% of Hillary Clinton's fundraising goal and 40% of Donald Trump's in 2016 came from individual contributions. Twitter has become an especially important tool for voter mobilization. The percentage of Americans following elected officials on Twitter continues to soar. Citizens like following political figures on social media because they feel more emotionally connected to the candidates. Social media also allow users to avoid exposure to information that challenges their pre-existing views. It's easier to follow people online whom you agree with. Elected officials and organizations on the ideological left and right have taken advantage of this dynamic to filter the news and current events. Recent research finds people who use social media for politics frequently hold stronger opinions and are more polarized by party. A benefit of Twitter for politics, however, is that it leads to more interest in politics and higher rates of participation and voter turnout. Researchers have suggested a number of possible reasons that digital politics may foster participation. First, information and political news are available 24 hours a day for those with internet access. Online news is often breaking news that could spread rapidly and is generally free. Digital politics may also engage individuals who otherwise would not be involved in politics. The internet creates a form of accidental mobilization for those who are greeted by political news on social media. Sometimes politics finds the individual rather than the other way around. It is common for candidates to place political ads on social media sites and in Google searches, prompting the individuals exposed to these ads who may be online for entirely separate reasons to learn about politics. Donald Trump took advantage of online political ads in the 2016 campaign, unlike any other modern candidate, spending millions of dollars on online ads. With two-thirds of Americans using social media, Facebook was the 500-pound gorilla that mobilized voters to support Trump. Facebook ads were more important than televised ads in 2016. Further... Digital media have unique characteristics that enhance participation. Streaming video online combines the qualities of print media that promote knowledge and in-depth reporting with the immediate and visual aspects of television that generate interest, engagement, and emotion. Emotional responses to political candidates of issues learned from online media that have been shown to trigger interest in politics and engagement. And research has found that emotions are important in candidate evaluations and ultimately political behavior and participation. A recent study found Obama in 2008 and Trump in 2016 generated higher positive emotions from their supporters compared to other candidates. High emotional enthusiasm for these candidates was associated with their popularity and ultimately their election victories. Finally, Online politics makes it easier for people to participate in politics because it requires less effort. By its very nature, digital politics occurs in ways that are less location-dependent than traditional politics. Community takes on a very different meaning in an online social network compared with, say, a voter's actual neighborhood precinct. The internet facilitates participation that is potentially broad, but with loose connections. A large but more loosely knit online community may promote extensive reorganizing efforts and improve political knowledge, interest, and participation, but it also encourages forms of participation that can be low in intensity and sporadic collectivism, like before, possibly attracting individuals with only moderate political interest. Political scientist Bruce Bember has shown that some interest groups are responding to this new political climate of sporadic participation by making it possible for individuals to support a specific issue or campaign without making a commitment to membership in the organization as a whole. In this way, online politics widens the pull of political participation. For all these reasons, digital media may foster a new kind of community building that has the potential to reverse the trends and declining political participation since the 1960s. Some analysts have cited reduced trust in government, unresponsive elected officials, and a diminishing stock of what Robert Putnam, author of Bowling Alone, calls social capital community networks that motivate political participation to explain low voter turnout in the United States by making political information, discussion, communication, and mobilization easier. The internet and especially social media uh, may help Americans grow a new kind of digital social capital. One based on shared political experiences online. political scientist Russell Dalton has argued that participation in politics is becoming more expressive than ever before, largely aided by social media. Today, individuals turn to social media to express their opinions on issues or candidates in many ways. This trend was exemplified by the response to the 2015 Supreme Court ruling that made same-sex marriage legal in all 50 states. In the wake of the decision, digital politics created a media firestorm as responses to the decision took over the internet. The immediacy with which the news spread was remarkable. Traditional media and social media converged to celebrate or denounce the news that marriage for same-sex couples was the new law of the land. Social media enabled citizens to share their opinions in uniquely expressive ways. For example, the hashtag lovewins was used Almost five and a half million times in 24 hours, even by celebrities and President Obama, to recognize the court's decision. Overall, there were 10 million tweets about the Supreme Court decision in less than 12 hours. And Millions of people, too, used Facebook's tool to add a rainbow-colored background to their profile pictures or shared news stories and memes using rainbow images to show their support for marriage rights. Increased participation in digital politics, especially through social media, may force elected officials to better represent the people. While social media can be effective in online political mobilization and activation, at the same time digital media creates silos, echo chambers, and filter bubbles, where individuals with shared views communicate to the exclusion of others, leading to increased ideological party polarization and eventual hyperpartisanship people tend to surround themselves with news from like-minded sources in such environments people may uncritically believe news from outlets they trust while dismissing or ignoring information from sources they dislike social media algorithms can also create echo chambers that lead to extreme or biased views that get worse over time creating a world of alternative facts where individuals cannot agree on these principles there is evidence that social media Because of filter bubbles, polarized information environments has exacerbated partisan conflicts, social divisions, the culture wars, and intolerance based on race, ethnicity, gender, or religion. Anonymous social media discussion boards can have unintended consequences by allowing a forum for racism and hate speech, terrorist appeals, and sexual harassment. Forums that have mobilized far-right groups, including white nationalists. Some observers see a lack of civility in public discourse, or what is called a coarsening of public discourse. Members of targeted groups, such as women and minorities, may opt out of participating in discussion of politics in what has been called the disruption of the public square. Free and fair elections are the foundation for democracies, but democratic elections may be increasingly vulnerable to manipulation by foreign governments and other extremists because of open networks and unregulated political advertising on social media. Donald Trump's campaign not only capitalized on social media and high enthusiasm from his supporters, but also benefited from a Russian cyber campaign that used social media to discredit his opponent. Intelligence agencies have confirmed Russian interference in the election. Russian propaganda to disrupt the election was intended to mobilize Trump supporters to vote, demobilize Clinton supporters, promote third-party candidates to Bernie Sanders supporters, and sow seeds of discord in the American public. The first strategy focused on mobilizing voters to cast a ballot for Donald Trump. One notable ad featured a kneeling soldier and stated that the Constitution should be amended to take control of the army from Clinton should she be elected president. A similar ad had the false caption, 69% of veterans favor Trump when in reality, only 52% of veterans voted for Trump, compared to 48 for Clinton. As Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware, said, this ad is nothing short of the Russian government directly interfering in our elections, lying to American citizens, duping folks who believe they are joining and supporting a group that is about veterans and based in Texas, when in fact it is paid for in rubles by Russians. A second category of Russian propaganda worked to suppress votes for Clinton, These ads were targeted in sophisticated ways toward Democratic and partisan groups in swing states such as Wisconsin, Michigan, and Central Pennsylvania, but also nationwide. Fake news stories focused on Clinton's health and mental stability in the two weeks leading up to the election. The most troubling Russian propaganda ads encouraged people to cast a vote for Clinton by texting or tweeting their ballot, both of which are invalid forms of voting in the United States, finally to dissuade Bernie Sanders supporters From turning out to vote for Clinton, the websites of Sanders supporters were found to have extensive postings by fake Eastern Europeans' bot accounts. The scope of Russian interference in the 2016 election and the foreign propaganda campaign was far greater than initially expected. Facebook and other social media platforms revealed thousands of false political ads appeared on their networks that were paid for by Russian operatives, with many of the ads focused on voter suppression. These ads are estimated to have reached 126 million people on Facebook alone, or 40% of the U.S. population. The information was shared hundreds of millions of times. The Russian propaganda on Instagram during the election reached another 20 million people. Twitter found nearly 3,000 accounts controlled by Russian operatives and 36,000 more bot accounts that tweeted 1.4 million times during the election. Recent study from USC found that one in five tweets about the election were from bot accounts. The majority promoted stories damaging to Clinton. In addition to the aims described above, Russia's campaign on social media also sought more generally to divide the public over controversial issues such as race, immigration, abortion, gay rights, and gun ownership. Fake Facebook accounts linked to Russia included, for example, infidels against Islam, fed up with illegals, and "Stop killing white people. Russian interference has exposed the outside role, outsized role played by platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, and Google in American politics and discourse, and that these companies don't always follow the same rules as government institutions. Russia's actions expose the dark side of technology for democratic governance. Unlike traditional media, like radio, television, print media, online political ads on Google and social media sites are not regulated. A foreign government was able to take advantage of the United States' open digital communication and media system to interfere in the election. In response, Congress has enacted economic sanctions on Russia and is considering new regulations of online political advertising. The Honest Ads Act is aimed at preventing foreign influence on elections by subjecting political ads sold online to the same rules and transparency that apply to TV and radio. The technology companies have also taken steps to crack down on fake accounts. As we have seen, digital participation in politics has benefits and costs. It has the power to f- it has the potential to foster innovation, free expression, social connections, information seeking, and political participation. But it may also foster misinformation, intolerance, a lack of civility, and breaches of privacy and even demobilization. A barrier to digital participation is the digital divide, defined as the gap between those with and those without home internet or mobile access. Growing inequalities online replicate existing societal inequalities based on race and economic class that threaten to widen gaps in who is informed about politics and who participates. Today, over 35% of Americans don't have home broadband, and those without access tend to be poorer, less educated, and older. The digital divide creates new inequalities as the world of politics moves online. Perhaps the most transformative aspect of digital media is how they affect candidates and parties. Political candidates find campaigning online particularly attractive because it is cost-efficient and can reach a wide audience of prospective voters. Running for office can be enormously expensive, but social media may help level the playing field by reducing candidate reliance on money from corporations, special interests, and wealthy donors. Digital politics holds the promise of reinvigorating a more grassroots and participatory democracy. In 2016, Bernie Sanders largely rejected Super PAC funding for his campaign and relied heavily on digital media. Donald Trump did the same during the primaries. Grassroots funding, in turn, may allow political leaders to better connect to and ultimately represent the people. Individuals face a number of costs and benefits related to their decision to become involved in politics. Just as in any other activity in life, an individual is likely to vote in an election only if the benefits outweigh the costs. One benefit associated with voting is the favorable policies that might result from having one's preferred candidate or party in office which the potential voter weighs against the slim likelihood of her vote actually influencing the outcome of the election. Another benefit of voting is the sense of pride gained from fulfilling one's civic duty. The costs related to voting can include the time and resources needed to become informed and to cast a ballot, which may help explain why the poor and the less educated are less likely to vote and participate in politics in other ways. To understand who votes, it helps to understand why some Americans don't vote. The U.S. Census indicates the top reason for not voting in the 2016 presidential election was did not like the candidates or campaign issues. This reason was cited by almost 25% of non-voters in 2016, compared to just 13% who gave this response in 2012. 15% of non-voters said they were not interested in politics. 4% said they were too busy or had conflicting schedules. And almost 12% said they had an illness or disability that prevented them from voting. So as we can see, even personal health can be a predictor of voting with the healthier more likely to participate in politics. The factors that help us explain voting in elections can be grouped into three general categories. A person's social and demographic characteristics and attitudes about politics, the political environment in which elections take place, such as campaigns that seek to mobilize voters and whether an election is contested among two political candidates, and third state electoral laws that shape the electoral process. So we're going to talk about each of these. One of the most important and consistent findings from surveys about participation is that Americans with higher levels of education, more income, and higher level occupations collectively, what social scientists call higher socioeconomic status, participate much more in politics than do those with less education and less income. Education is the single most important factor in predicting not only whether an individual will vote, but also most kinds of participation. Unsurprisingly, income is another important factor when it comes to making contributions, as well as voting. People who are more affluent have the money, time, and capacity to participate effectively in the political system. Among people aged 45 to 64, for example, 2016 census found that 83% of individuals earning over $150,000 a year voted compared to 43% of those earning less than 23,000 or 20,000 a year. So these characteristics are also related to attitudes toward politics. Higher levels of political interest are associated with individuals higher on the socioeconomic scale. Education is one of the most important predictors of voting, and it is also associated with encouraging other people to vote or support an issue as well as making a donation to a candidate or cause. Older people have much higher rates of participation than do young people, in part because home ownership and property taxes, more common among older individuals, lead to a greater awareness of the importance of government. This pattern was evident in 2016 with Citizens 65 and up reporting highest turnout. Youth turnout remained lower than the average across all other age groups in 2016, In midterm elections without a presidential race, youth turnout has historically been extremely low. However, in 2018, youth voter turnout increased by 10% to 31% from 21% in 2014. So millennials aged 18 to 35 are now the largest age cohort in the United States. According to Pew, 47% of millennials are Democrats or lean Democrat compared to 34% who are Republicans or lean Republican. In 2018, 67% of young people supported Democratic candidates. A primary reason young people don't vote is that they lack an interest in politics or have not been mobilized to participate. Studies have found that if young people do vote, they tend to maintain this habit throughout their lifetime. Another reason younger people vote less is that political campaigns often target older voters rather than young voters because the former are more likely to vote but this may be changing as more organizations channel energy and resources into getting younger people to vote. Next Gen America, for example, is an organization mentioned on or organization focusing on youth turnout that helped register a million voters in the 2016 election. Next Gen supports candidates who favor addressing climate change, alternative energy, and reversing economic inequality. Since the early 1990s, several campaigns have sought to increase the participation of young voters. Rock the Vote and enlists musicians and actors to urge young people to vote. It has spawned other initiatives aimed at young voters, including Rap the Vote and Rock the Vote Alo Latino. The Obama campaign made young voters central to its electoral strategy in 2008 and 2012, winning a significantly higher percentage of the youth vote than his opponents. So although Sanders failed to secure his party's nomination, election polls consistently showed over 80% of people aged 18 to 29 preferred him to his opponent, Hillary Clinton. Sanders called for a political revolution and focused on ending a corrupt campaign finance system, combating economic inequality, and providing free college tuition. Young people were drawn to the candidate's reputation of honesty and authenticity. Relatively low voter turnout by the young has implications for the policies addressed by government at the local, state, and federal levels. Young people do share older Americans' concerns about the economy and national security, but they tend to be more concerned about economic inequality and student debt, and express support for stronger environmental laws, funding for public education and colleges, and more tolerance for personal freedoms than older people do. So the distinctive attitudes of today's young people suggest that higher levels of political participation by this group could significantly alter government policy and politics. So, like, when we talked about uh, civil rights and civil liberties, during much of the 20th century in the South, the widespread use of the poll tax literacy tests and other measures, such as the white primary, deprived African Americans of the right to vote. This system of legal segregation meant that African Americans in the South had few avenues for participating in politics. Through a combination of protest, legal action, and political pressure, the civil rights movement compelled a reluctant federal government to enforce black civil and political rights. The victories of the civil rights movement made blacks full citizens and stimulated a tremendous growth in voter turnout. The movement drew on an organizational base and network of communication rooted in black churches, the NAACP, and historically black colleges and universities. Because they tended to vote as a cohesive bloc, African-American voters began to wield considerable political power, and the number of African-American elected officials grew significantly as blacks exercised their newfound political rights. Despite this progress today, state laws requiring government voter identification have created a new impediment for black and other minority voters in some states. Being represented by a member of one's group appears to have positive effects on participation levels. African Americans are more likely to vote when residing in states with increased representation in the legislature as measured by the percentage of black lawmakers, for example. But racial segregation remains a fact of life in the United States, along with the persistence of black urban poverty. These conditions, often called concentrated poverty, post barriers to African-American political participation. So like when we talked about socioeconomic status, uh, participation is highly correlated to, with more income, higher education, and higher level occupations. Nevertheless, comparing citizens of similar socioeconomic status African Americans are somewhat more likely to vote than whites. This may be because African Americans are a minority group. They feel a shared sense of collective identity, a concept called linked fate. They're more likely to vote and participate politically. And black linked fate is a major predictor of political behavior. Uh, Political scientist Michael Dawson uses the construct of linked fate to measure the degree with which African-Americans believe that their own self-interests are linked to the interests of the race. So that is the experiences of African-Americans with race and racial discrimination in the United States, including a history of slavery, unify their personal interests in seeking a candidate and policies that benefit their racial group. Black civic community, religious and political organizations are also important in increasing political participation for this group. For many years, Analysts called the Latino vote the sleeping giant because Latinos, while accounting for a large portion of the population as a group, had relatively low levels of political participation. So as a group, more Latinos are recent immigrants to this country, with fewer opportunities like access to quality education than do other ethnic and racial groups. Therefore, they're more likely to lack the resources for political participation like money, time, and language skills. But today, politicians, political parties, and scholars view Latinos, the largest and fastest-growing minority in the United States, as a political group of great importance. So, although Latino registration turnout are lower than those of other racial groups, these numbers have been increasing. Rapid population growth, increased registration rates, and uncertain party attachment all magnify the importance of the Latino vote. While Latinos... Have tended to favor the Democrats in national elections, particularly due to staunch Republican opposition to immigration. Latinos tend to be religious, which may be expected to make them more socially conservative. But national surveys of Latinos find that they often do not allow their religious beliefs to dictate their political decisions. In addition to favoring an easier path to citizenship for immigrants, Latinos also favor more liberal economic policies. In 2016, Latinos strongly favored Clinton over Trump. Trump made ending illegal immigration a major theme of his campaign, proposing to build a wall between the United States and Mexico. The issue of immigration has continued to widen the partisan divide between minorities and white non Hispanics. While 55% of white non Hispanics voted for Republicans in 2018, 76% of non-whites voted for Democrats. In 2018, 69% of Latinos voted Democratic. Similar to African Americans, Latinos are also more likely to vote when residing in states with increased representation in the state legislature, as measured by the percentage of Latino lawmakers or in a district with a Latino member of Congress. This phenomenon is commonly referred to as descriptive representation, when individuals are represented in government by officials of their same race, ethnicity, or gender, allowing minority groups to have a greater ability to affect policy outcomes. Descriptive representation may also confer symbolic benefits, such as reducing levels of political alienation among racial and ethnic minorities. As the Latino population continues to grow, this group may influence more strongly who wins and who loses in U.S. elections. Asian Americans are a smaller group than whites, Latinos, or African Americans, comprising roughly 6% of the population or 21 million citizens. In particular, states like California, home to 33% of the nation's Asian American population, the group has become an important political presence. Asian Americans have education and income levels closer to those of whites than of Latinos or African Americans, but they are less likely to participate in politics than whites or African Americans, and they have voter turnout rates similar to Latinos. No one national group dominates the Asian American population, and this diversity has impeded the development of a group-based political power. Asian Americans often have different political concerns from one another, stemming from their different national backgrounds and experiences in the United States. Historically, These groups have united most effectively around common issues of ethnic discrimination or anti Asian violence, federal immigration policies, and discriminatory mortgage loan practices. Asian American voter turnout rate increased to 49.3% in 2016, up from just under 47% in 2012, and surpassing Hispanics for the first time since 1996. But Asians constitute a much smaller share of the electorate than Latinos. In 2016, roughly 5 million Asians voted. Asian Americans have been moving, along with other minority groups, toward the Democratic Party in recent elections. Although a majority of Asian Americans voted Republican in the early 1990s, in the 2000s, they have been voting increasingly Democratic. And 65% of Asian Americans voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. The U.S. electorate in 2016 was the country's most racially and ethnically diverse ever combined African Americans, Latinos, and Asians, and other racial or ethnic minorities accounted for nearly 20% of all voters, almost an identical percentage as in 2012. However, since minority groups made up a larger share of the overall populations in 2016 than 2012, this means many minorities chose not to vote in 2016. At the same time, turnout for non-Hispanic whites increased in 2016, in large part mobilized by Trump's campaign. Today, women register and vote at rates similar to or higher than those of men. The ongoing significance of gender issues in American politics is best explained by the gender gap. A distinctive pattern of male and female voting decisions in electoral politics. Women tend to vote in higher numbers for Democratic candidates, whereas Republicans win more male votes. Behind these voting patterns are differing assessments of key policy issues. Women are more likely than men to oppose military activities, especially war, and to support gun control, as well as social spending for healthcare, public education, and welfare. Though the gender gap generally runs around 10 points in presidential elections, the 2016 presidential election, saw the first female major party candidate, Democrat Hillary Clinton, and the largest gender gap in history. Surveys showed that 54% of women supported Clinton compared to 41% among men, a 13-point advantage. So one key development in gender politics in recent decades is the growing number of women in elective office, an increasingly significant form of descriptive representation. A record number of women ran for office in 2018, and at least 25, 125 women will serve in the 116th Congress, up from 107 in 2016. The, new, the numbers mark a new all-time high for the pr- number of women in Congress. Over 100 women won House seats and at least 13 women won Senate seats, in addition to the 10 female senators who were not up for re-election this year. Recent research has shown that one key to increasing the number of women in political office is to encourage women, more women to run for political office. Although women are just as likely as men to win an election, women are less likely to run for office, even if they are equally qualified. Because women are less likely to men to hold office, they are less likely to benefit from the advantage of incumbency. Organizations supporting female candidates have worked to encourage more women to run for office and have supported them financially. In addition to the bipartisan National Women's Political Caucus, the Women's Campaign Fund and EMILY's List provide pro-choice Democratic women with early campaign financing, which is critical to establishing electoral momentum. So why does the gender gap matter? Although women in public office by no means take uniform positions on policy issues, surveys show that, on the whole, female legislators are more supportive of women's rights, education, and healthcare spending, and are also more attentive to children's and family issues. Nevertheless, partisanship matters more than gender in terms of representation of women's issues, especially in the currently high par- highly partisan political environment in Congress. More women in Congress are Democrats, and Democratic lawmakers are much more likely to support these issues than Republican lawmakers, regardless of gender. Religious identity plays an important role in American life. For many citizens, religious groups provide an organizational infrastructure for political participation. African-American churches, for example, were instrumental in the civil rights movement. And African-American religious leaders continue to play important roles in national and local politics. Jews have also been active as a group in politics, but less through religious bodies than through a variety of social action agencies, including the American Jewish Congress and the Anti-Defamation League. In the United States, churches are an important social institution that often fosters political participation. Through church activities, many people learn civic skills that prepare them to participate in the political world. Today, roughly one in four Americans are religiously unaffiliated and do not identify with any religion. For most of American history, religious language, symbols, and values have been woven deeply into the fabric of public life. Until the mid-20th century, for example, public school students generally began the day with prayers or Bible readings, but a variety of court decisions greatly reduced this kind of overt religious influence on public life. These decisions helped to spawn a counter movement of religious activists seeking to restore the prominent role of religion in civic life, and the mobilization of religious organizations has been one of the most significant political developments over the past half century. Some of the most divisive conflicts in politics today, such as those over abortion, birth control, and contraceptives, hinge on differences over religious beliefs. These divisions have become so salient that they now constitute what is called a culture war, with repercussions throughout the political system and many policy areas. One of the most significant drivers of this new politics was the mobilization of white evangelical Protestants into a cohesive political force. The Moral Majority, the first broad-based political organization of evangelical Christians, quickly rose to prominence in the 1980 election when it aligned with the Republican Party, eventually backing Ronald Reagan for president. Over the next few years, evangelicals strengthened their movement by registering voters and mobilizing them. Their success was evident in the 1984 election when 8 in 10 evangelical Christian voters cast their ballots for Reagan. In 1988, the televangelist Pat Robertson Robertson, ran for president. Although his candidacy was unsuccessful, his supporters gained control of some state Republican parties and won positions of power in others. President George W. Bush was closely aligned with religious conservatives. And they played, and the religious, right, sorry, played an important role in electing him. In 2016, most evangelical Christians supported Trump in the general election. Despite the influences of race and ethnicity, gender, age, religion, and socioeconomic status, these factors are not the only explanation for voter turnout or other forms of political participation. Our incomplete understanding of what motivates political participation is evident when we compare voting across countries. If more political resources lead to a greater likelihood of voting, why does the United States, one of the most prosperous countries in the world, have only moderate voting rates? And Americans have become more educated over the past century with more people finishing high school and attending college. Given the well-documented links between educational attainment and voting, why has participation declined during this period? And so these puzzles mean that we need to look beyond the socioeconomic characteristics of individuals into the larger political environment in which po- public participation occurs. All right, so whether or not people feel engaged or are recruited to participate in politics depends on their political environment that is, social s- setting, their friends and family, where they live, what associations they belong to. So for example, citizens living in presidential battleground states, states with roughly equal numbers of Democrats and Republicans in the population are exposed to a torrent of campaign ads, candidate visits and grassroots mobilization efforts. These individuals are more knowledgeable about presidential elections are more interested in the campaign and have a higher probability of voting than residents of states that are safe for either the Republican party, such as Texas or the democratic party, such as New York or California. A critical aspect of political environments is whether people are mobilized by parties, candidates, campaigns, interest groups, and social movements. So a recent comprehensive study of the decline in political participation in the United States found that half of the drop-off can be accounted for by reduced mobilization efforts. People become much more likely to participate when someone, especially someone they know, asks them to get involved. A series of experiments conducted by the political scientists Donald Green and Alec Gerber demonstrate the importance of personal contact for mobilizing voters. Evaluating the results of several get-out-the-vote drives, the researchers showed that face-to-face interaction with the canvasser greatly increased the chances that the person contacted would go to the polls, boosting overall voter turnout by almost 10%. The impact of direct mail was much smaller, increasing turnout by just 0.5%. Robocalls, which are pre-recorded phone calls from a phone bank, had no measurable effect on voter turnout. Social media networks can mimic face-to-face communication. In a large study involving 61 million users on Facebook, political scientists found voter turnout in the 2010 midterm election increased by 334,000 additional people who otherwise would not have voted. So users' closest friends on the network had the most influence in getting them to vote. So, online and offline networks both played a role in mo- mobilizing voters. In previous decades, political parties and social movements relied on personal contact to mobilize voters. So, we saw during the 19th century, American political party machines, they used hundreds of thousands of workers to bring voters to the polls. The result was a very high voter turnout rate, typically more than 90%, but party machines began to decline at the beginning of the 20th century. And by the late 20th century, parties have become essentially fundraising and advertising organizations rather than mobilizers of the people. Without party workers to encourage them to go to the polls, many eligible voters will not participate. So, But uh, back in 2016, we saw political campaigns shifted to social media as a primary way to mobilize voters and directly provide their supporters with election updates. Today's modern campaigns use massive computer databases and sophisticated data analytics to identify individuals and members of the electorate to mobilize turnout in elections. Digital politics creates digital footprints that can be used by candidate and issue campaigns for micro-targeting to mobilize voters in elections or shape their opinions about politics. In Hacking the Electorate, political scientist Eaton Hirsch argues that most of what campaigns know about voters comes from a core set of public records based on the voter rolls from all 50 states with data on 240 million Americans. States vary in the kinds of records they collect from voters, however, and these variations in data by state make campaigns more or less effective at micro-targeting voters in different states. States with better record-keeping and computerized public records will allow better mobilization of voters in campaigns. To be motivated to vote, individuals must be interested in the election and knowledgeable about the candidates. An important factor often overlooked in analyzing political participation is whether elections are competitive. That is, whether there are at least two parties and their candidates actively contesting a position in government. Competitive elections and the campaign spending and mobilization efforts that go along with them play a key role in turnout in the U.S. Conversely, limited exposure to competitive elections may be one reason for the lower levels of turnout since the 60s. When in many congressional, statewide, and local races we see a candidate, often the incumbent, runs unopposed or is expected to win by such a large margin that the challenger's chances are virtually nil. When congressional districts are drawn to favor one political party over another, what is termed gerrymandering, election outcomes are thus often highly lopsided in favor of one candidate over another. Relatively uncompetitive elections are a primary reason why most members of Congress win by landslides. So, electoral competition reduces the cost to individuals of becoming informed, leading to higher turnout. Conversely, if elections are uncompetitive, where the winner beats the loser by more than 5%, or uncontested, where they, only one name appears on the ballot, they generate little political information. Without active campaigns, individuals have few opportunities to be interested in, in an election and may not vote. Unique rules for presidential elections in the U.S. create variation in electoral competition across the 50 states. No other country uses an electoral college to mediate between a national or direct vote for presidential candidates and the actual winner. To win, a U.S. presidential candidate must receive a majority of the votes in the electoral college. Each state is given a set number of votes in the electoral college based on the size of its congressional delegation. Some citizens reside in competitive battleground states such as Florida, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. These states are defined by high levels of competition between the parties. Most Americans, however, live in non-battleground states, also called safe states like California, New York, and Texas, where one of the major parties is generally assured of victory in presidential elections. Hence, presidential elections are often decided by a relatively small number of voters in the U.S.'s dozen or so battleground states. Every four years, residents of battleground states get smothered with attention from candidates and media, while citizens in states with fewer electoral votes or where one political party has a solid majority barely get noticed. One study found that voter turnout is higher in battleground states than in non-battleground states and less skewed in terms of lower participation by the poor and young. Even the rules for nominating presidential candidates create variation across the states in electoral competition that affects voter turnout. Selecting presidential candidates involves a sense involves a sequence of statewide primary elections and caucuses. The early phase of this process is dominated by a handful of small population states. The privileged position of Iowa and New Hampshire sites of the nation's first caucus and first primary, respectively can boost political participation in those states. Similarly, similarly, studies have shown that citizens residing in Super Tuesday states, the 12 states that hold primaries or caucuses on a single day, about six weeks after the New Hampshire primary, are more likely to vote in presidential primaries and be interested in the election. Usually, the nomination contest is essentially over quickly, as one candidate secures a significant lead in early primaries, leaving many citizens with no role in selecting their prime nominee. Turnout in states with later primaries include large states like California and Texas naturally plummets. Beyond candidate races, ballot measures like initiatives and referenda have been found to increase voter turnout. Especially in lower profile. Midterm elections, but also in presidential elections. Elections that include controversial initiatives on the state ballot in which citizens vote directly on policy questions like the minimum wage, immigration, or taxation have also been found to increase voter turnout, political interest, and contributions to interest groups. In many states, ballot measure campaigns are important for mobilizing voters and can have spillover effects on candidate races. When citizens are asked to vote directly on controversial policy issues, public awareness of politics and politics policy debates increase. Initiatives often involve, involve high campaign spending by proponents and opponents of the proposed law, which generates mass media coverage. The LA Times estimated that $452 million was spent in California alone in 2016 on controversial ballot measures including legalizing the recreational use of marijuana and repealing the death penalty. Additionally, simply being asked to vote on issues, salient or otherwise, can increase participation. This has been called the educative effects of direct democracy as voters are forced to make a yes or no choice on the policy issue. Only 24 of the 50 states have the initiative process that lets citizens draft legislation, circulate petitions, and place the issue on the ballot for a popular vote. This is another reason that what state one. can matter for how likely they are to participate in politics. As stipulated by the Constitution, the states, not the federal government, control voter registration and voting itself. This decentralized system continues to create wide variation in the laws governing elections and voting, which affect participation in politics. Voter turnout in presidential elections in the last decade ranges from a high of over... 70% of eligible voters in Maine to 42% in Hawaii. State electoral laws can facilitate or create barriers to voting that can reduce participation and help explain the differences in turnout rates across states. In most democratic countries, residents are automatically registered to vote in elections at adult age. In the United States, citizens must actively register to vote and in most states must do so in advance of the election, sometimes 30 days beforehand. An important factor reducing voter turnout is our nation's unique state-by-state patchwork of registration rules. In every American state but North Dakota, individuals who are eligible to vote must register with the state election board before they are actually allowed to vote, although a growing number of states allow same-day registration. At the turn of the 19th century, progressive reformers introduced registration requirements to limit political corruption and discourage immigrant and working class voters from going to the polls so that political parties would be more responsive to middle class voters and professionals. One of the most common reasons that people in the U.S. give for not voting is that they are not registered. Young people especially are less likely to register to vote than are older Americans. In part because they tend to change residences more often than older people. Registration requirements also reduce voting by less affluent individuals and those with lower levels of education because registering in advance of the election can be more difficult than the act of voting itself. Once individuals become interested in the election and learn about the candidates, it may be too late for them to register, especially if they live in states that require registration up to a month before the election. Registration requirements thus not only reduce the number of people who vote, but also tend to create an electorate that is, on average, better educated, more affluent, older, and whiter than the citizenry as a whole. In an effort to boost voter turnout, a number of states have begun to offer same-day registration, which means that people can both register and vote when they go to the polls on election day. As of 2018, 18 states plus D.C. had enacted same-day registration laws. They've recently gone even further, adopting laws to automatically register their residents to vote in elections by information sharing between government agencies collecting similar information. Department of Motor Vehicles and the Secretary of State's office, for instance. Those these states have adopted these laws. Automatic voter registration was only in effect in Oregon for the 2016 election. And turnout in Oregon did not increase from 2016 from 2012. Some scholars believe automatic voter registration is more likely to have an impact on turnout in state and local elections rather than presidential elections when voters are better informed and don't need a reminder to vote. Although many U.S. citizens are strong advocates of universal suffrage and voter turnout, this reform triggers controversial debate and deep partisan conflict. Opponents contend that these laws make the state's voter rolls more vulnerable to fraud. Supporters say the new system may be more secure than traditional paper registration because rather than simply attesting to their eligibility with a signature, individuals have to submit proof of citizenship. Automatic voter registration is generally favored by Democrats who want expanded access to the ballot box. Republicans, on the other hand, often don't want to add new voters who may be more likely to support the Democratic Party. It is important to note, however, that lawmakers are not always correct about which party will benefit from increased voter registration. Another barrier to voting is the requirement that voters provide proof of identity. Despite near-universal adult suffrage in the United States, recent adoption of voter ID laws in many states has reduced turnout rates, especially for the low-income racial minorities, the elderly, and people with disabilities, all of whom disproportionately lack government ID. 34 states have some identification requirements to cast a ballot at the polls. But 10 states had strict ID laws in 2018 that required voters to present a government-issued photo ID or non-photo ID in order to cast a ballot. So government identification can be difficult to obtain even if an ID is available for free because citizens must pay for a birth certificate to apply for a government-issued identification. Travel to the DMV can be difficult for the elderly, disabled, and those living in rural areas. While the true effect of these laws is still not known, some government reports estimate strict voter ID laws reduce turnout by 2-3%, to which can amount to millions of people who are prevented from voting nationwide. And voter ID laws may change election outcomes in swing states. Photo ID is a partisan issue in Wisconsin and elsewhere. Republicans argue that such laws protect against voter fraud and ensure that the vote is fair, regardless of party opponents of voter ID laws, mainly Democrats, counter that there have been almost no significant instances of voter fraud in the modern era and that these laws suppress the vote of segments of the population most likely to vote for Democrats, but also least likely to have photo ID. Racial minorities and the poor. And studies have shown that illegal voting via impersonating someone else is very, very rare in the U.S. There's also a wide variation in implementation of voter ID laws. In Texas, a student identification card does not count to vote, but a gun owner's license does. A barrier to voting that has grown more important in recent years is the restriction of voting rights of people who have committed a felony. 48 states... And the District of Columbia prohibit prison inmates who are serving a felony sentence from voting. In 21 states, felons on probation or parole are not permitted to vote, but voting rights are restored automatically after parole or probation is complete. In 13 states, felons lose their voting rights forever for some crimes. On the other end of the spectrum, felons never lose their right to vote in Maine and Vermont. With the sharp rise in incarceration rates over the past three decades, restrictions on voting for felons have had a significant impact on voting rights. By one estimate, 5.3 million people, about 2.4% of the voting age population, have lost their voting rights as a result of these restrictions. Felon voting restrictions disproportionately affect minorities because 59% of the prison population is African American or Latino, though these groups only make up 30% of the population. 1 in 8 black men cannot vote because of a criminal record. The impact of felon disenfranchisement has been especially strong in the South. Concern over the impact of these voting restrictions has led to campaigns to restore voting rights to people who have committed a felony. Election reform efforts over the past century have focused on making voter registration and voting more accessible and convenient. As mentioned above, like before, same-day registration allows citizens to both register to vote and cast a ballot on the same day. Concern over SDR focuses on fraud and non-citizens voting, as might be expected in states that allow registration on the same day of election. Not only is voter turnout higher than the national average, but younger and less educated voters are more also more likely to participate. On average, SDR increases overall turnout by 5%. In 1998, Oregon was also the first state to create a system for voting exclusively by mail thus eliminating polling places altogether. Individual voters fill in their ballot at home and place it in the mail or drop in boxes throughout the state. In Washington State, Colorado, California, many other states, many citizens now cast votes using permanent absentee ballots, which are mailed. This is an option where a ballot is sent automatically to your home for each election rather than having to request an absentee ballot every time. 27 states in the DC area allow no-excuse absentee voting, which means any voter can request an absentee ballot without providing a justification. Not only does mail vote, like by mail voting, increase turnout, it also saves the government money by not having to staff polling stations throughout the state. But because the Western states tend to have higher voter turnout than most other parts of the country, it's difficult to disentangle whether mail voting or regional political culture drives that higher turnout. Another reform that has been adopted by many states is early voting, which allows registered voters to cast a ballot at their regular polling place up to 40 days before the election. 33% of votes cast in the 2016 election were cast early, either in person or through mail. Some three of these states that allow early voting, in which any qualified voter may cast a ballot in person during a designated period prior to election day, uh, go so far as to mail a ballot to all registered voters. Some studies find that the effects of early voting laws and turnout and the demographic composition of who votes are not yet clear. One study from Oregon found that by that voting by mail tends to advantage upper class and older citizens who are more likely to vote anyway, but others contend that early voting increases turnout among groups that are traditionally less likely to vote, including minorities. For a political campaign, a vote cast early is like securing another dollar in the bank. So overall, SDR has been found to have the greatest effect in boosting voting rates and making participation by different demographics more equal. Having the ability to vote at the last minute helps many people who otherwise may not vote, particularly young adults and individuals with a high school level education or less. An individual need not become aware of the registration process in order to register to vote. He merely needs to know the day of the election and the location of the polling place where registering to vote and voting can happen at the same time. So I hope you found this Politicast interesting, looking at uh, participation in voting. And on the next Politicast, we're going to look at political parties.